All right, let's turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And I hope you've noticed that when we're going through the narratives, we kind of go a little quicker. And then when we come to one of Jesus's discourses, we'll slow down and, and take that a little more time with that. So uh, we uh, covered chapter 8 in, in about two, three weeks. And now we're going to cover chapter 9 uh, pretty quickly as well. But we're looking at the first 13 verses this morning. Matthew chapter 9. And beginning in verse one, and I'm going to ask you to stand just one more time and give reverence to the reading of God's word. And uh, I'll just go ahead and read this aloud and you can just follow along either in your copy of the word or on the board behind me. And getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You know, every now and then you'll get one of those articles that come across your, uh, your social media wall, you know, your Facebook wall or whichever one that you're using. And, uh, and every now and then it'll catch your attention. And one caught my attention this week. It was the, the 50 worst product flops of all time. And, uh, and I, I got to admit, as I was looking through them, a couple of them kind of made me crack up. Like, for example, how many of you guys in here like Cheetos? You know, the, the, the chip, you know, Cheetos, right? How many of you knew a couple of years ago they came out with a lip balm? Now, I don't know about you, but when my lips are chapped, the first thing I think is, man, I wish I had a Cheeto. You know, and so that just weird. Um, what was another one? Um, how many of you guys know the Hot Wheels? You know, the little toy cars that uh, kids play with, you know, and, and even <laughs> some adults. Um, how many of you know they came out with a personal computer several years ago? I don't know. I don't know. Barbie came out one with one too. Uh, Burger King seems to come out with a product flop every week, but... But one really took the cake back in 2013. How many of you guys remember the saddest fries? You guys remember those on the menu, the saddest fries? I don't know. It's, I don't know what it was about them. Apparently, when you're a burger place, you should focus on burgers, though, and not on fries, because it did not do well at all. Or how about this one? Back in, in the early 1980s, this was about 1982, Colgate. Now, we are talking... The toothpaste company, Colgate, all right? Guess what they decided to venture out into? Frozen meals. Now, I don't know about you, but I know the time that I love to eat my meals the best is right after I've brushed my teeth, right? I brush my teeth and I think, man, I, I just wanna eat right now because that does wonders for how things taste. Colgate really knows how to make things taste good, don't they? How many of you had orange juice right after brushing your teeth? It's nasty, nasty, right? So I expect Colgate to come out with orange juice here pretty soon. 
What, what is so weird about that? Why, why do those things crack us up? Because all of those companies, they, they seem to have kind of lost their focus on what their primary mission was. I mean, let's, I mean, think about it. The mission of Colgate is to take food off your teeth, not to put food on your teeth. That's, that's, that's kind of a reverse thing, right? And so these companies kind of lost focus on, on what it was they were actually supposed to do. I mean, who in the world idea was it to come out with new Coke back in the 80s? How many of you guys remember that disaster, right? It was terrible. And so as, as much as we laugh about this, but guys, there, there is a natural kind of inclination. There is a natural tendency that unless we are intentional, we will drift away from our primary focus. We will drift away from what is our primary mission. And we will do that in the Christian life and we will do that in the church as well. And many churches, I think, are walking around today, uh, meeting even this morning, and they have, because they've been on autopilot, because they haven't been very intentional, they have drifted away from their primary mission, their primary focus. And so they're doing things like trying to entertain, or they've become kind of social engine uh, kind of influencers, or they're trying to do all sorts of other stuff, but the one thing they're not doing is presenting the kingdom of God. And so what we wanna focus on, what we wanna do this morning in my prayer is that we will reorient our focus back to what is the mission of every disciple. What is the mission of every church? And that is kingdom expansion. Now we've been tracking in this section of Matthew and you know that this section of Matthew from chapter eight all the way through chapter 10 is all about the growth of the kingdom. And, and we've talked about what is the mission of the disciple. And we've talked about several things here. And so last week, we, we talked 18 through, through 34. We talked about the price of following Christ. And we talked about what the priority is there. We, we saw that in the two would-be disciples We saw the peril of following Christ. Every time you go on mission for Christ, there is going to be peril. And we saw that in physical danger, yes, but we also see spiritual dangers that are involved and being involved in the mission as well. And so we saw those last week. But why is it so perilous? Why is it that the mission of Christ is so dangerous, even physically at times? I think there's a simple answer to that, and we see it in verse 13, where Christ says this, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Christ came to call sinners, and beloved, sinners love their sin. Sinners love their sin. And so if we are going to be on mission for Christ, we must call sinners. This is, the, this is the consistent testimony of Jesus's mission. Look in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, just for a second. I believe I have it on the board. He says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come and seek and to save those who are already found. He came to seek and save the lost. And look at Timothy uh, in 1 Timothy chapter one. This is the first of the trustworthy statements that you see throughout the pastoral epistles. There's about five or six of them. And the first trustworthy statement that Paul gives to a young pastor as he says, this saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is why Jesus came. And beloved, if we are going to be on mission as a disciple, then we must be about the business of calling sinners to Christ. That's what we are to do. If we are going to be on Christ's mission, then we must call all sinners to Christ. Why do we need to keep this central? Why does this need to reorient our focus? Why why do we need to come back to this and remind ourselves of this time and time and time again? Oh, how easy it is to forget that. We get all lost in our our preferences. We get all lost in our 
and the ways that we want to do things and the way they were always done versus the new ways and, and all of this different stuff. It's so easy to lose our focus on what is it that the church is actually supposed to be doing. Why is it that the church uh, has survived for 2,000 years? It's not because we got the right temperature on the thermostat, ladies and gentlemen. It's because we stayed on focus and called sinners to Christ. That's why we've survived this long. It's not because we got the right carpet the right color in the carpet. It's not because we had chairs instead of pews or pews instead of chairs. It's not because we sang the old music versus the new music. It's because we called sinners to Christ. That's why the church has survived. And so, beloved, in the same way, we've got to call all sinners to Christ. And we're gonna see two reasons from that in Jesus's ministry in these verses that we've read this morning. And here they are, number one, we call sinners to Christ because Christ is able to forgive sin. And also later on, we're gonna see because he is actively seeking out sinners. He is actively seeking sinners. He is able to forgive sin and he is seeking out sinners. So he's able to forgive sin. Let's look, you ready? Here we go. Matthew chapter nine, verses one through eight. We see a, a couple of themes in this section that has, has really kind of resonated, and I've tried to keep them in front of you uh, this whole time. Uh, for instance, we saw following Christ last week. Uh, one thing we saw in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, is that he looks out on the people and he sees that they are harassed and helpless. And, and we kind of looked back and showed how all of these 10 miracles that we're looking at uh, deals with people who are harassed and who are helpless. And so we see that theme. But, at, but really the bedrock theme that we are dealing with in this section is Jesus's authority. Jesus's authority. This comes up over and over again. For example, look in uh, chapter seven, verse 29. That is the first place we saw it. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, right? We see it again in, in chapter eight, verse nine. The, the Roman centurion recognizes that Jesus is one who has authority. It's going to come up again in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, when Jesus begins to call the disciples. He gives them authority. And so the bedrock theme for this whole section is the authority of Christ. And what is it that Christ has authority to do? What does that authority all kind of point to? That's the question, and that's the answer we find here in verses one through eight. Now, in, in verse two, there is a, behold, some people brought to him a paralyzed man uh, lying on a bed. Now, we don't know much about this guy. We don't know his name. We don't know anything about him. We don't know anything about him from this point forward. Uh, we do know some extra details that, uh, that the other gospel writers give us. For instance, uh, they, they actually dig a hole through the roof and they lower him down from the roof. But, but it's not really Matthew's purpose to tell us about all that. We do know that whenever he is carried, Mark tells us he's being carried by four men. So don't, don't think a bed like a bed you lay on at night, but think a stretcher, like a, like a mat, right? And so you've got one guy on each corner who's carrying him in. And they brought him in and they lay him before Jesus. And I want you to know Jesus's response here in verse two. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, now I want you to notice, he doesn't actually heal him at first. He doesn't actually deal with his physical ailment at first. The first thing he does is when he sees their faith, he says, my son, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Now, up until this point in the Gospel of Matthew, we have not seen a lot of controversy from, between Jesus and the religious leaders, but it's about to start. And it's about to start because of that statement right there. Because when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, notice the response of the religious leaders in verse three. In verse three, they say, behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. 
Now, why do they say that? Why do they say that? Jesus is not a priest, okay? At least not in the Jewish sense. He's not a priest. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not a son of Aaron. And on, that, and on top of that, when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, there were no Old Testament sacrifices. There were no Old Testament laws that were followed. Jesus saw this man and he looked upon his faith alone. We say that, right? Faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone. That's more than a mantra. He looks at their faith alone and he says, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders know that ultimately only God has the authority to forgive sins. They recognize what Jesus is doing here. They recognize what Jesus is claiming. In fact, Mark chapter two because he is uh, writing to Romans and people who are not as familiar with Old Testament theology, he, uh, he kind of spells out their thoughts for his audience. He says, this man is blaspheming for who can forgive sins but God alone. Jesus saw their faith alone and he forgave their sins. Now here's the thing, their theology is right. They are correct here. They, they know what they're talking about. They, they understand, they're understanding their Old Testament correctly. They've got that right. But what they are misunderstanding is who Jesus is. Their theology is right. Their view of Jesus is wrong. By the way, beloved, oh, church, be careful with that. How often we get our theology right, but our Jesus wrong? How often we get our politics right, but our Jesus wrong? How often we get our ethics right, and yet we're not really representing Jesus to them. Oh, beloved, be careful with that. And yet their theology is right. Their view of Jesus is wrong. And so Jesus is going to give two demonstrations. Number one, I want you to notice in verse four, Jesus knowing their thoughts. Here's the thing. The scribes never actually said anything. They're just thinking this in their hearts. They're just, they're thinking to themselves, you know, if you ever hear a sermon where a preacher says something kind of off and you're like, what? You know, sometimes I get that look from some of you. What? What did he just say? What? You know, that's what, that's what's happening here. And yet Jesus knowing their thoughts. In fact, the word knowing here is actually another use of the word seeing. He, he perceives their thoughts three times in this text. The, the word seeing comes up and he sees their thoughts, just like he saw the paralyzed man and just like the crowd see that he's healed. He sees their thoughts. What's significant about that? That is a divine attribute. That in and of itself is a divine power. Psalm chapter 139 and verse two Reading the psalm, he says, you know, speaking to God, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And skipping down to verse four, it says again, he says, and even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all together. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. He is demonstrating that he has that divine ability to know their thoughts. So that's the first demonstration. But then the second demonstration is more overt. It's more overt. In verse five and six, he says, for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? This is a perfect argument. Perfect argument. Because, listen, anybody can say to you, your sins are forgiven. Brother Bobby, your sins are forgiven, my brother. And you know what? That might make him feel better. That might kind of ease his conscience a little bit. But at the end of the day, it doesn't mean a thing. Why? I don't have the authority to forgive his sins. 
I can't do that. I mean, based on the authority of God's word, I can see that he has repented of his sins and I can give him assurance and I can give him confidence based on the God's authority that his sins are forgiven. But I can't just look at him and of my own, of my own intuition say, brother, your sins are forgiven. I can't do that, right? But it's easy for me to say it. I can pretend like I can. I mean, I can say that until I'm blue in the face, right? But you know one thing I can't do? I can't tell you to get up out of your wheelchair and go hopping away. I can't tell you to get off your cane and go dancing in the streets. I can't tell you to do any of that. Which is easier? Which is easier to disprove is really the idea here. And so Jesus probes them a little further. He says, which is easier to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. And notice verse six, this is so important. And this is really key to all the miracles. He says in verse six, but so that you may know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then what does he do? He looks at the paralytic and he says, rise, take up your bed and go home. And the man rose, he picked up his bed, and he went home. I can say your sins are forgiven all day long time, blue in the face. I can't do that. No one can do that. Only God can do that. Let me show, that, let me, let me show you this. Go back to Genesis chapter one. Go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter one. In verse three. And I want you to notice this pattern. In verse three, and God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. Verse six, and God said, and then at the end of verse seven, what do you see? And it was so. Verse nine, and God said, and at the end of verse nine, what do you see? And it was so. Verse 11, and God said, and then at the end, what do you see? And it was so. Verse 14, and all the way through Genesis chapter one, you see that, that, that the measure of God's power is that he speaks and whatever he speaks comes to be. Whatever he says happens. These are royal decrees, if you will. And the measure of an ancient king is that he could, is that he could speak and then his servants would do the work. That was the measure of his power. And yet God, he is so powerful, he doesn't even need the servants. He speaks, and whatever he says comes to pass. Whatever he says happens. And now that's what Jesus is doing. You see that same arrangement here, that in verse, in verse six, he says to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And in verse seven, he rose, he took up his bed, and he went home. And it shows that Christ's words has the same divine power as the words of God in the act of creation. People cannot do this. I don't, I don't care what they tell you on the Inspiration Channel. People can't do this. This is not a power that God has given to man, but it is a power that Jesus possesses. Why? Because he is God. You know, there's a, there's a lot of different Jesuses in the world today, and we could talk about the Muslim Jesus, who is really just one of a line of prophets that culminates in Muhammad. We could talk about the Mormon Jesus who went to visit the American Indians and forgot to tell anybody about it for 18, until 1,800 years later. We could talk about the Jehovah's Witness Jesus that was really the firstborn creation of God, and then, then he turned around and he created everything else. We could talk about all kinds of Jesuses, but, but even in evangelical churches today, we could talk about different Jesuses that are often presented. Like, for example, Jesus is my therapist. 
Jesus is my therapist. His goal is to make me happy and, and well-functioning. You may remember a couple years ago when the flu was particularly bad in our country and, uh, and uh, one heretic, I won't say names, but her initials are Gloria Copeland. And she actually said, she said, Jesus is my flu shot. She actually told her audience, don't get your flu shot because Jesus is our flu shot. Because in her theology, Jesus' main job is to keep me healthy and to keep me wealthy, right? You hear a lot of uh, songs that are sung in a lot of churches today. You get the idea that Jesus is my boyfriend. And, you know, you wonder why men hate going to church. Well, look at some of the songs we sing. No dude wants to sing that to another dude. I don't care who he is, right? And so... You hear a lot of these songs, you get the idea that Jesus is my boyfriend. Or some, well, Jesus is my homeboy, you know? We're high-fiving Jesus. No, the issue may not be necessarily what they're teaching, what they're emphasizing, but the issue is, is what they're not emphasizing. The issue is what they're not emphasizing. Beloved, the mission is not to find people and help them be happy, well-adjusted, healthy, wealthy, loved and embraced, high-fiving sinners who are on their way to hell. That is not the mission. The mission is to have forgiven sinners, rescued sinners, saved sinners, sinners who have escaped the wrath to come. That is the mission of Jesus Christ. None of those other Jesuses can do that, but the Jesus of the Bible has authority to forgive sins. And that is why we bring the Jesus that we do. That is why we teach the Jesus that we do. Because he is the only one who has authority to forgive sins, and he just proved it in verses one through eight. And so our mission is to take this Jesus to the world. Take this Jesus to a lost and dying world. Who do we take him to? Well, that brings us to verses nine through 13. We must call sinners, all sinners to Christ because Jesus is able to forgive sin, but also because we see here that Jesus is actively seeking out sinners. He is actively seeking out sinners. Look, look in verse nine. Verse nine is really interesting. We're gonna see two examples of Jesus actively seeking out sinners. And the first one is really cool because we get to meet for the first time our author. We get to meet the author of our gospel. And so in verse nine, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. I want to stop right there for a minute. We see that our author, Matthew, began his life, began his adult life at least, as a tax collector. In fact, if you look on in chapter 10, verse 3, when we see the list of the called apostles you're gonna see that uh, he actually refers to himself. Matthew's the only one. He's the only one who lists out the apostles. And when he names himself, he actually calls himself Matthew the tax collector. None of the other, none of the other gospels say that. And it's almost like Matthew is, is, is not only kind of, uh, um, kind of putting himself down, but he's also showing, he wants you to know, listen, I'm the guy. This is the guy. I'm, I'm the one that I just told you about. This was me. This is my testimony. And what's interesting about this is that when you read the other gospels, they call him Levi. And we don't know exactly why that is. My suspicion, and, and I could be wrong, my suspicion is that later on in Acts chapter one, they're gonna have a new apostle. They're gonna appoint a new apostle and his name is gonna be Matthias. And even though they don't sound the same in English, in Greek, though Matthew and Matthias are actually very close together. And so my guess is that the other apostles probably started calling Matthew Levi in order to avoid confusion. 
okay? So that's my guess. So anyway, bottom line is, here we go. More important than that, than who Matthew was, is his interaction with Jesus. And so let's look at that. He sees the Matthew, the tax collector, sitting at this booth. And I wish I had more time to give you history of taxes in, in Israel. Um, it's not the most exciting topic in the world, about as much as today's taxes are. And so uh, I know some of you are accountants, so you, maybe you find it exciting. Good for you. Uh, so, but, uh, but we don't. And so... Um, uh, it's about every year, every year in April, I have to give a check in my spirit. But anyway, but here's what I will say is that the tax system in Israel was corrupt from the top down. Everyone from the emperor all the way down to the individual tax collectors, you had the governors, you had, you had the kind of the district managers, if you will, over the, the local collectors, and then you had the local collectors themselves. And this tax system existed for one reason and one reason only, and that was to make every one of those guys rich. And they did a very good job at it. Very good job at it. They were, many of them were rich beyond belief. It was a well-known problem, but just like today in a lot of our politics, there's no incentive to fix it because everybody's getting rich off of it, right? And so there's no incentive to fix it, even though it is a well-known problem. It was abusive, it was exploitative, and it was oppressive. And the Jews hated the Romans for it. And there, was no, and there was only one other person that they hated worse than the Romans, and that was Jews who went to work for them. And so the tax collectors in Israel were the most hated people in Israel. And it is hard to put this into an American category for how much the Jews hated tax collectors. And I can imagine Matthew sitting at his tax booth and he's been watching Jesus walk back and forth, back and forth, back and forth and doing all of these things. And maybe his curiosity is getting piqued. Maybe his curiosity is wondering, you know, well, I wish I could follow him. Or maybe something is happening in his own heart. Something is being awakened. But he knows as a tax collector, if he even tries to go over there, two things are gonna happen. Number one, those who are following Jesus, it, it, it could even cause a riot. I mean, they are going to literally reject him. And number two, and we know this from history, that when a tax collector abandoned his booth, he, there was no second chances. He could never go back to it. And so he knew that he would be destitute and he would have nowhere to go if he followed this Jesus. But oh, how maybe he wanted to. Maybe, maybe he dreamed about it. Maybe he thought about it. Maybe he was, I don't know this. The text doesn't say this. But maybe, I can't help but to wonder as Jesus is walking by and all these crowds are walking by with him, maybe he has thought several times, I wish I were in that crowd. But then one day, Jesus walks by, and you see here, Jesus sees him. And Jesus stops everything, and he says to him, just very crisply, very, just like the first apostles, just like the first disciples in, in Matthew 4, all he says, follow me. And Matthew gets up, leaves everything behind. And I mean everything. Understand, by him abandoning his post, he now has nowhere to go. The Jews don't have a place for him. The Romans no longer have a place for him. But beloved, Jesus has a place for him. And now he abandons everything to follow Jesus. And sometime later, and, and we don't know when later, the implication from the text and the, and the fact that this follows every other account seems like maybe it's even as early as later that evening or maybe it's the next day or maybe just a couple. I, I can't remember if one of the parallel texts says later that evening or not, but, but we know sometime very soon after that in verse 10, we see the second example where Christ is reclining at table. By the way, 
That's the same phrase we saw back. You remember when Jesus said, for many will come from all the nations from everywhere and recline at table with Abraham and the fathers. Now we see that phrase again. And now Jesus is reclining at table, but who's he doing it with? It's not with Abraham and the fathers. It's not with the religious leaders. No, many tax collectors and many sinners came and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Beloved, listen, when you get a reputation for someone who loves sinners, they come. They'll come because they're looking for this. They don't, they don't need to hear about how bad their life is. They get that from everyone else. I'm not saying don't preach the truth. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that if we get a reputation for people who love sinners well, you will see them coming out of the woodwork. Because if there is one thing our culture is missing today, it is people who love broken people. People who love broken people like me, like you. People who love, embrace, and welcome sinners. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And it gets the attention of all the other tax collectors and all the other sinners in the town. They all begin to see, wait a minute, this is a rabbi. This is a religious leader who actually wants us to come. They've never seen anything like this before. And so they're there and they're in the house and they're reclining with him. And I've, and I've always wondered kind of the look on disciples' faces while this was going on. Because we know what the Pharisees do. We're about to see that. But I can imagine the disciples just standing around going, <laughs> you know, I mean, they grew up in this culture. They have the same prejudices. They have all the same things like that going on. And so... But it got the sinner's attentions, but you know who else's attention you'll get? If you become, if you have a reputation for someone who loves sinners, you'll get sinner's attention, but you know who else's attention you'll get? The hypocrites. And that's exactly what happens here. The Pharisees walk up to his disciples. Notice they won't even approach Jesus because now he's unclean. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners, how dare he? What does he think he's doing? And apparently they were pretty incredulous about this because Jesus heard their question. Maybe he read their thoughts again. Maybe, maybe he just knew. I, I don't know. Text doesn't say. But it does say somehow he heard them. And he says in verse 12, but when Christ heard it, he said, and he gives a simple and yet profound response. He says, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Those who are well don't need to go to a doctor, but those who are sick. You know, we saw a lot of true colors during COVID, didn't we? We saw a lot of true colors. We saw exactly how much our governments, from state to local, all the way to federal, we saw exactly, even the Supreme Court, we saw exactly how much they respect freedom of religion. It has become the unfavored right in our country. But some of the things we saw during COVID kind of made me laugh because it was just so ridiculous. Like whenever you would go to a, maybe you go to a drive-thru and, and they'd have that little basket, you would take your card out, put it in the basket, not hand it to them, put it in the basket, then they would take the basket, they would take the card out. What did they just accomplish? Nothing. <laughs> they accomplished nothing, right? But the one that really kind of made me laugh was the signs on the doctor's offices. If you are sick, do not come. What? <laughs> and even the hospital had those signs. If you are sick, if you are coughing, if you have fever, do not see your doctor. 
I, I guess now they're watching the Inspiration Channel. I don't know, but but uh, and so I remember when the day came when when my doctor's clinic said, "Okay, if you're sick, you can come see your doctor now," and everybody thought that was normal. I was like, "Why are we celebrating this? This this is the way it should have been the whole time." right? I mean, guys, I mean, pardon my frankness here, but how stupid is it to tell someone, if you're sick, don't go see your doctor? How stupid is that? It's about as stupid as a church telling someone, if you're a sinner, don't come to our church. It's about as stupid. Oh, you've got to get your heart right then you can come to our church. You've got to get things figured out. I actually had a, uh, an elder of a church I pastored one time. He said, uh, we were talking about how great it was that so many people were coming to church. And he said, yeah, but they're not the sort that belong in our church. And I told him, I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. People who need Jesus better stay as far away from your church as possible. I was a little younger back then, a little more brash. I wouldn't do that today. Yeah, I would. So, um, (laughs) beloved church, listen to me. If we want to be the church, if we want to be on Jesus's mission, then we must be actively seeking sinners. We must be seeking sinners. And I hate to tell you this, but all the good sinners are taken. All the good sinners are taken. We need to go after the ones that no one else wants. Go after the ones that no one else ever thinks of. But maybe in those, Jesus is calling them. And that's when you see the power of evangelism. That's when you see the power of Christ forgiving sins. When you take a a knothead kid who was trying his best to get in as much trouble as possible, angry kid, ready to start a fight at any moment with anyone who, who has sat in a police department before having been picked up, having done all of this other stuff, and you take that kid and you bring him into the church and you disciple him and you see the power of God work in his life, and you see what Christ can do with that kid, beloved, that's when you see the power of God. Say, what kid are you talking about? You're looking at him. You're looking at him. And that's when we see the power of God in our lives. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. This is a text that is well known. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I hate how so many people stop reading right there. And they also tend to kind of kick out of that verse kind of their sins. And they stop reading there and they don't go on. What does it go on to say in verse 11? And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Beloved, this is what the kingdom looks like. It looks like a bunch of messed up people who are putting off their mask and who are standing together with hearts full of grace, arms raised, voices loud, praising the wonderful, gracious, and awesome, forgiving Savior. That's what the kingdom looks like. And we don't all come from the same backgrounds. We don't have all the same pet sins. But this is what the kingdom looks like. And beloved, this is why we call sinners. When you realize 
that when this is how God demonstrates his love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Beloved, when you realize that, how can you do anything else but worship God? How can you do anything else but give your life to him? When you come into contact with this message, it changes you. It makes you different. It puts you into, it gives you the heart, the very heart of Christ. It makes you alive. Those dead sins aren't there anymore. It does something different. So beloved, this morning, we are to call sinners to Christ because Christ is able to forgive sins and Christ is actively seeking out sinners. Are you focused on that? Are you focused on the mission? Are you, church, are we sufficiently focused on that mission this morning? What can we do to help with that? Let me give you just some quick things we can start to do. Number one, choose someone and begin to pray for them. It begins with prayer. You can't do this on your own. Paul says that pray for me, pray for that I would present the gospel clearly as I should, that I would speak clearly as I should as I proclaim the kingdom of God. Beloved, find someone. Chances are you already have contact with someone every single week. Choose someone and begin to pray for that person. You don't have to say anything to them yet. Just pray for them. Begin to pray for them. And God will give you the opportunity to help to present the the gospel, the cross of Christ to them. Number two, Choose and that person and pray for them, but also repent of all known sin. Psalm chapter 66, 18 uh, says this. It says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Why is it that my prayers for other people, why is it that my prayers seem so hindered? Maybe it's because you're cherishing iniquity in your heart. Maybe that's why. Use some of these guides that, that Dr. Frizzell gave you during the prayers conference. Use some of these things that he, that he helped with and that he uh, taught and, 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 and go through a time of spiritual cleansing, but repent of all known sin. And then finally, number three, make sure that you know the right Jesus. Beloved, we're not sending out Jesus as my therapist We're not sending out Jesus as my boyfriend. We're not sending out Jesus as my flu shot. We're preaching the Jesus, the son of God, who has the authority to forgive sins and is waiting and willing to forgive your sins. Friday uh, was parents' day in the... uh, uh, for the football breakfast, and I was making a lot of eggs, and and so Liz, uh, kind of Liz, I didn't tell you I was going to do this, so don't be embarrassed. But uh, Liz was uh, trying to help out, and so she grabbed a cast iron skillet and she washed it, you know, and and she put extra eggs in it, and she started to make the eggs. And at one point, the eggs started to take on the color of the skillet. <laughs> and uh, and at this point, she was like. Uh, uh, is this okay? And, and I think she finally decided, I, was, I think I'm going to throw out this batch because it had the wrong color. It just, it just, it just didn't look good, right? And, uh, but you know what's so funny about that is that if you get a person who is hungry enough, he will eat the eggs no matter what color they are. Why do people keep going to these other Jesuses? Because, beloved, a starving person will eat any food you give them, even out of a trash can. We have the pure eggs of the gospel. We have the pure eggs of Jesus Christ. Let's not keep those to ourselves. Let's feed a starving community who is in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's feed them the real spiritual food, the food that when you eat of this gospel, you will never hunger again. What is that gospel? Simply this, that Jesus died for our sins. He lived a perfect life, earned the righteousness that you and I need because we are all sinners and we are all in need of a savior. We all deserve eternal 
hell, eternal punishment. And Jesus came and he lived that perfect righteousness. And then he died on the cross for our sins so that we can be forgiven. And then he raised on the third day and he and over 500 people saw him, including those who wrote our Bible, so that we can know that he is the Lord. He is the Savior. He has ascended to the right hand of God and he now offers himself to each and every one of us as a rescue from our sin, a rescue from the wrath to come. We have a word for that in the church. We call it a savior. He offers himself to us as a savior. Will you come and know Jesus Christ? I'm gonna stand down here in a second and I invite anyone to come who needs to know Christ. Or maybe you're here this morning, you need to join our church. Maybe you're here and you need to confess Christ in baptism. That's how we, that's how we profess Christ. That's how we confess Christ is by the scriptures is that we, we submit to baptism. Maybe you need to do that. Whatever your need is, will you come? Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. We thank you for these wonderful encounters that people had with you. And Lord, I pray that if there's one here today who has not had an encounter with the living Jesus Christ yet, maybe they have been listening to Jesus as their therapist, or maybe Jesus as their boyfriend, or maybe Jesus, all these other Jesuses that they just simply, they simply don't save. The emphasis of a Jesus who forgives sin is simply not there. Lord, whatever their need is, I pray that today would be the day you draw them to yourself. And there's one, if there's one here who maybe they have professed you as savior and now they need to confess that profession to the world. Maybe they need to be baptized. Lord, may they come today. Lord, whatever their need is, I pray that you would reorient, that you would refocus us back to your mission, which is to call sinners to Jesus Christ. Let's all stand this morning. I'm gonna ask you if you're here and you know of someone who needs to hear the gospel, would you pray for them just by name? Would you pray for them? Whatever, it is, whatever your need is, I invite you to come. As our musicians play for a little while, and you reflect, and then we'll close us out.